Welcome back for another week. Today, we've got three things to cover. So sit back, and let's get down to business. Here we go. What's going on, listeners? Welcome back to another episode here on the Sean's Take podcast. As you heard in the intro, we're covering three different subjects today, and that would be the MLB. We've got to talk about the World Series a little bit, but one specific aspect of the World Series that I think has gone very unnoticed or unrepresented since the Rangers won, we got to talk a little bit about the NBA and two of these rookie stars that are taking over the league right now. And then we've got to talk about a little bit of college football. The playoff rankings are out. There's a lot of interesting things going on. So we're going to be about 15, 20 minutes today in and out, but we have some good subjects to cover. So without any further ado, let's get into the MLB. Everyone talked about how the Rangers won the World Series, but no one's really talked about what it means for Corey Seager. It is time that we open up the Corey Seager legacy conversation. So Corey Seager's played for nine years in the MLB. And here's what he's accomplished. He came in one rookie of the year. He's a four-time All-Star, a two-time Silver Slugger winner, an NLCS MVP award winner. He's now a two-time World Series champion. And he's also a two-time World Series MVP award winner, which puts him in some very elite class. And that's something that we need to discuss. Corey Seager is now one of only four players to have won the World Series MVP award multiple times. Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, Reggie Jackson, and now Corey Seager have won the award twice. That is a very nice-looking list to be a part of. And to make it even more exclusive for Corey Seager, he joins Reggie Jackson as the only players in MLB history to win the award on two different teams. He won it with the Dodgers, and now he has won it with the Texas Rangers he was dominant this entire postseason, and he capped it off with a great World Series and winning the World Series MVP award. So obviously what the Rangers did was incredible. I think they had over 100 losses two years ago. They rebuilt that roster around Corey Seager. He was one of those pillars that they brought in from free agency after Corey Seager left the Dodgers to be a guy who was going to headline this franchise, and they did a great job building out their roster. They had one of the best offenses in the entire league this year. Many thanks to Corey Seager, who this past season batted 327 and led the league in doubles or led the AL in doubles. Pretty amazing numbers for him. Made it all-star and obviously helped them on an incredible playoff run and an incredible World Series run where he got crowned World Series MVP. So he is now one of four players in MLB history to win two World Series MVP awards. And this puts him in elite elite conversation. He's going to be in contention for the Hall of Fame now. I think he's almost a no-doubt Hall of Famer, and that's not something that I think people would have talked about 
before this season. It was, yeah, he's a really good player. He made three All-Stars. He's a World Series MVP, a World Series champion, rookie of the year. That's all great. But this second World Series ring and his second World Series MVP award, I think has to ascend him into the Hall of Fame conversation. And in my opinion, he should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He'll play another, whatever, six to eight years in the MLB. If he puts up respectable numbers from here on out, maybe wins another World Series. He's on a very good team that has the potential to be good for the next five or six years. He's going to go down as one of the best to ever do it. And if he could pick up a third World Series MVP award, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with that now. We're going to be talking about Corey Seager as an all-time great, not just a very good shortstop for the time period where he played in. He should be in the Hall of Fame. He's already in elite category. He's one of two players to win the World Series MVP award on two different teams, one of four to win it twice in their entire career. And he's only about probably at the halfway point or a little past the halfway point of his career. So he's got a lot of time to pick up a couple more all-star appearances, got a lot of time to make a couple more deep postseason runs. Maybe he can add an, a regular season MVP award in his resume, but two World Series MVP awards is something that looks very, very good for Corey Seager. And he is going to go down as one of the all-time greats for what he's done on the field there. And that's not something that people have really talked about. And I think part of that is because he's not the flashiest guy. You don't see his name in the news a lot. So he does go a bit under the radar. But man, has he produced throughout his career and has he produced when it's mattered the most in the playoffs. So I wanted to highlight Corey Seager because that's a conversation that we need to talk about moving forward in the MLB and next year and beyond is how Corey Seager is now just trying to add to his legacy. There's not that many players who are trying to add to their legacy to be considered an all-time great. And Corey Seager, with, with these awards that he's accumulated, seriously has the potential to do that and go down as one of the all-time great shortstops in MLB history. So it's pretty impressive. It's something we haven't talked about much, but it's a conversation that I think needs to be started and needs to be carried on for the next couple of years. And hopefully he only adds to his impressive start from here on out. So now let's move over to the NBA, our second subject of the day. We need to talk about the NBA rookie of the year race. I know it's early in the season, but we need to talk about the rookie of the year race and why we may see something happen that hasn't happened since 2000. Chet Holmgren and Victor Weminyama have not disappointed to start their young NBA careers. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. And yes, at the time of me recording this, they both only played in six games this season. It, there's a long way to go. They'll probably play seven or eight games by the time this episode airs. But while they've only played six games, I'm only expecting them to get better as the season goes on. These guys are young. They got their first taste of NBA action. I'm only expecting them to pick up a bigger role with their team. As the season goes on, and I'm only expecting their numbers to improve as the year goes on. So we'll start with Chet Holmgren in Oklahoma City. Through his first six games, he's averaging 17.2 points, 7.3 rebounds, 2.7 assists, 1 steal, and 2.3 blocks per game. Victor Weminyama with the Spurs is averaging 20 points per game, 8 rebounds, 2 assists, 1 steal, and almost 3 blocks per game. These are numbers that if they improve a little bit more, probably in the scoring department, that's what everyone wants to see, we'll get both of these guys in the All-Star game in their rookie season. And it's going to be a tight race, assuming they continue their production and potentially even pick up on their production throughout the rest of the season. 
it's going to be a very tight rookie of the year race. And part of what could impact the standings for rookie of the year would be if the Oklahoma City Thunder, I'm projecting at the beginning of the year, I had them much higher than the Spurs in terms of the win department. I think the Thunder avoid the play-in tournament. I think they'll be a top six team in the West. And while the Spurs are unlikely to make the playoffs, I will say watching them throughout the start of the season, they could be in contention to be a bubble team this year in the playoffs. If Wemby continues to get better and this young roster around him is very solid, if they all gel and grow together, they're going to be in contention for a playoff spot. I think the Thunder will finish better. They're a little bit more experienced. They've got some other guys like Shai Gilgis-Alexander who have been around a little bit longer and are legitimate superstars. So advantage goes to the Thunder there, but that could help Chet Holmgren out a bit if the Thunder are, let's say, the four seed in the West and the Spurs are 10 or 11. That could give him some more advantage because theoretically he helped his team win a lot more. But the point I really want to make with the Rookie of the Year race, and thank you to Riley McGuire for, for highlighting this for me. The reason I mentioned the year 2000 is because that's the last time we saw co-Rookie of the Years in the NBA. It has happened three times in NBA history where we had co-Rookie of the Year. And the 99-2000 season was the last time that happened. Steve Francis and Elton Brand shared that award that year. Will it happen again this year? Will this be the year co-Rookie of the Year returns to the NBA with Chet Holmgren and Victor Wembanyama? I think it's a realistic possibility for that to happen. Both guys are playing great. Assuming both guys stay healthy and maintain this success and improve throughout this season, I think both of them are going to have such a great resume for Rookie of the Year. And the NBA may double down and for the fourth time in league history, give the award to two different players. So history could be made. It's one of the most interesting storylines in the NBA this year, watching these young guys. Both are going to be huge, huge, huge contributors for their teams moving forward, both have legitimate superstar potential. We knew that coming into the season, and both of them have only reaffirmed that so far this year. So, co-rookie of the year, you need to be watching out for that. Keep an eye on these two guys as the season progresses. They're very fun to watch. Their teams are very fun to watch. And it's going to be a very interesting rookie of the year race, but I think there is a chance it could end with both of them being named rookie of the year. So we're going to head to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're talking about the college football playoff standings. There's a lot to cover there. We'll see you soon. Men talk women. Men talk sports. Finally, a talk show where men huddle. And break into real conversation, real issues, the real deal. Men for men better living. Real men, real talk. Please, stay safe and stay healthy. As a 25-year Wayne resident, Foggy's Automotives took care of all my car needs. And for real estate, everyone knows it's the Gene Lope team. Listen, we may not agree on who's the best golfer, but we certainly agree that all of our customers and clients are our friends. And we love you. During these trying times, we care. Let's keep our community strong. Stay safe and please stay healthy. You're listening to And now it's time for our third subject of the day. And as I mentioned, that would be the college football playoff picture. I'm not going to lie to you guys. 
The playoff picture is an absolute mess this year. There are a lot of good teams and there are a lot of scenarios on which teams can get in. So we're just going to read through the rankings. We're going to put it all out on the page right now and we're going to try to figure this out as we go. But let me read you the top teams in the college football playoff rankings right now. Number one, and this is heading in to week 11 of the college football season. So we are getting at that time where things are coming to a close and playoff implications are very much so on the line. Number one, Ohio State. Number two, Georgia. Three, Michigan. Four, Florida State. If everything ended today, those would be the teams in the college football playoffs. Number five, we have an unbeaten Washington team. They're the first one out. They're the only remaining undefeated team in the rankings. Right behind Washington, we have Oregon, 8-1, and one, playing very good football. Number seven, the Texas Longhorns, 8-1. and one. Alabama follows them, 8-1 and one as well. Number nine, we have Oklahoma, who's 7-2. and two, And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to rule Oklahoma out right now. I don't think a two-win team is going to get into the college football playoffs. They're number nine. At number 10, we have Ole Miss, who's a big sleeper team. I don't think they'll get in, but if they win out, they definitely have the potential to. And then at number 11, we have Penn State, an 8-1 and one team. I think they should be higher because, again, I don't think you're getting in with two losses. But Penn State's also a team that controls their own destiny, and we will talk about that moving forward. So the biggest implication right now, we got to talk about a couple matchups. So the biggest one that comes to mind is what's going to happen at the Ohio State-Michigan game. Let's say Michigan beats Ohio State. Ohio State finishes with one loss. Do they get into the playoffs? Or would you take a one-loss Texas team? What happens if Alabama beats Georgia? There's all sorts of scenarios this year. And there's going to be more than four qualified teams. I'm very excited for the 12-team playoff format coming soon. But this year, we have four teams. And it's going to be hard to figure out those four teams. What happens if Penn State beats Michigan? That way, Penn State and Michigan both have one loss. Then what happens if Michigan beats Ohio State? And you have all these one-loss teams in the Big Ten who all deservingly with the wins they have should be in the college football playoffs the other big question is michigan gonna get suspended this year it's likely they're gonna get sanctioned heavily but the way things in the NCAA move it's not very fast so it's unlikely i think in my opinion that michigan faces any consequences this year but if all of a sudden they do and they're undefeated which would mean ohio state has one loss who are you putting in? Does Ohio State get a freebie despite losing to Michigan, but now Michigan suspended? What happens if Oregon goes undefeated, wins the Pac-12 as a one loss? There's a lot of scenarios that can come out of this, and it's very confusing, and it's going to unravel before our eyes over these next couple weeks. But let's break down one of the biggest situations that we have. And that would be centered around Oregon, Washington, Texas, Georgia, Bama, Michigan, Florida State. Let's say Bama knocks off Georgia and Michigan knocks off Ohio State. And then as I mentioned, what if Oregon wins out and wins the Pac-12? Who's getting into the playoffs? Let's say Florida State goes undefeated, wins the ACC championship game. They're in for sure. Let's say Michigan wins out. They're in for sure assuming they're not getting suspended. So that's two teams right there. If Oregon wins the Pac-12 with only one loss, I think it's very hard to not put them in. The Pac-12 is a great conference this year. They would have 
won the championship game, one loss. Your only loss came against Washington, who's one of the top teams in the country, and you only lost by, what, three points. So you could put Oregon in. Whoever wins the SEC, if it's Alabama or Georgia, they're in. Let's say Alabama beats Georgia, wins the SEC. Does a one-loss Georgia team not get in now? Would they be the first out? What if Texas wins out? Are they a one-loss team that doesn't get in as well? They're very qualified and deserving. There's a lot that's going to happen. Outside shot. Let's say Penn State beat Michigan, wins the Big Ten. Do they not get in because they put Ohio State in because Ohio State had beaten Penn State if the tiebreakers went that way? There's a lot of things that can happen, and no matter what, what I think is going to probably happen, I think Georgia wins out, so they're in. I think Florida State wins out, so they're in. I think Oregon does win the Pac-12, but I don't know if we can put them in yet. I think Michigan wins out, so they're in. So right now I have Florida State, Georgia, and Michigan, assuming they don't get sanctioned, as three locks to get into the college football playoffs because they would all be undefeated. So then that fourth team, do we put in Oregon a Pac-12 champion? Do we put in Ohio State because they only have one loss and it was to Michigan, one of the best teams in the country? Do we put in Texas if they win their conference? I think in that scenario, it has to go to Oregon because Oregon would be a conference champion. But it's not an easy decision there. So ultimately, I think I would have Florida State, Michigan, Oregon, and Georgia being the four teams that I think will get into the college football playoffs. This part was a little confusing because there's a lot that's going to happen, but the message I want to preach to you is that there are a, a lot of possibilities, and it's not going to be an easy job for the committee this year. I think this will be one of the most difficult years to pick your four teams to get in because in other years there's been five or six teams that could have gotten into the playoffs this year there may really be seven or eight teams that deservingly have a case to be in the college football playoffs it's going to get messy there's going to be backlash but at the end of the day only four teams get in i want to make sure you start looking at this race right now because it's going to be exciting. It's going to be intense. And from here on out, all of these teams that I just talked about need to be absolutely perfect if they want to secure their spot in the college football playoffs. And some of them will be perfect and still won't get in because it is that competitive this year. I don't think there's a clear best team in the country. I would say Michigan's probably the best team in the country. But last year and the year before when Georgia was the best team in the country, it was Georgia number one. And there was a significant gap to the number two team. There is not that this year. I don't think any of these teams are juggernauts this year. I think they're all very beatable on any given day. They've all shown that they can be beatable. Michigan's the team that has shown the least that they're beatable, but they've also had the easiest strength of schedule so far out of all those teams I mentioned. So this week against Penn State is very interesting for them. And then, of course, that Ohio State-Michigan game is going to be big time and tell us a lot about both Michigan and Ohio State. So my, I'll recap one more time, my final college football playoff predictions as of right now would be Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, and Oregon making up our four teams. We're going to see how that ages. We're going to see what happens these next couple of weeks. But what I can tell you is it will be exciting and it will be intense 
So make sure you're following that. And I'll be talking more about that on social media, my TikTok at Sean's Take. Make sure you join that. Make sure you follow. And also join our Discord, the link in my bio on TikTok. I'll post all that stuff in the comment section as well on this episode. But we're going to be covering it all. And it's going to be intense. So make sure you're watching. And that rounds out today's episode. So we covered Corey Seager and his legacy. We covered an intense Rookie of the Year race in the NBA and what will be a year-long race there. And we covered a bit about the college football playoffs. I'm sorry if that was a little confusing. It is a confusing situation and there's a lot that can happen, but it will be exciting. So as always, thanks for listening, listeners. And we'll see you back here next week on the Sean's Take Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sean's Take Podcast. And make sure to join Sean's Take on social media for more unique and exclusive content by following at Sean's Take on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok.